Welcome to the Gathering Chattanooga's audio resources. This message is part of a teaching from the Gospel of Mark. For more information on the gathering or to find additional resources, visit gatheringchattanooga.com. Again, that's gatheringchattanooga.com. And please consider subscribing to this podcast. We hope you enjoy and that God blesses you richly through the teaching of His Word. Hello again. Hope your Bibles are turned to Mark chapter 6, so that we not only read it or hear it, we read it as well. Let me just go ahead and clear the air on something before I get strange looks, because some of you are sitting there going, something looks different about this guy. What is it? Yeah, I'm trying contacts again for the first time after like five years. So if at any time during the message you start seeing me go, I'm not winking at you, and I'm not having a seizure. I am just drying out. If I'm doing this, it's the same problem. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Verses uh, 12 through 31 is what we're looking at today. And what we've looked at so far uh, in dealing with the life of Jesus, looking at his ministry through Mark's eyes. And let me just give you a quick reminder That Mark is writing for the purpose of communicating who Jesus is, why he should be trusted, and why he should believe in the face of difficulties and persecution. Is Jesus who he said he was? Because he was writing to some Roman Christians who were dealing with rising persecutions, rising tensions from Nero. It would get much worse than it was, but it was definitely bad. And so he's writing, Mark, who was a disciple of Peter, writing from Peter's perspective of the ministry of Jesus and communicate he is the son of God he does what he says he is who he says and you can trust him even if things get difficult you can trust him that's obviously a very good message for us to hear at this time in our lives where where it's getting difficult for us in some ways we're not under great persecution it's very possible that the people weren't at that point either but it could could happen in our lifetimes and so we need to to be able to answer the question for ourselves Is Jesus who he said he was? Is he real? Is he truly the son of God? Does he really care about me? Does he love me? When things get hard in my life, is he still there? And these are some things that we've seen through the disciples. The disciples have been in a situation where they thought they were going to die in a boat going to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And it seemed like Jesus didn't care. He was asleep in a boat, in in the belly of the boat. Did Jesus care? The the disciples asked that question. And Jesus demonstrated that, yes, he does care. He works in his time and in his way. Sometimes he will calm those storms and he will speak and the storm will be calm. Sometimes he doesn't. He lets that storm go, but he calms us and he works in our lives. Sometimes he will cast out a demon as he did with the the Gerasene man who had the demon and There are times when he will stop the flow of blood from a woman who had such faith that she just touched the hem of his garment, but he wanted to make sure that she knew that he knew her. He wanted to see her. He wanted to communicate with her to demonstrate that he cared. It wasn't just about raw power. It was about deep abiding love where he sought her out. He didn't stop the girl from dying 
But he had the power and the love and the compassion to step in and restore what had been destroyed, what had been killed, what had died. This is the power of the Son of God. This is the compassion and the love of the Son of God. It is him when things are going well, and it is him when things aren't going so well. Well, last week we looked at chapter 6 where Jesus uh, left the region of, uh, of Canaan. He moved down to his own hometown, which was about 25 miles or so away uh, from the sea. And he uh, entered into the synagogue. He began to teach. He spoke. Luke tells us that he spoke in the passage of Isaiah that said, hey, here's this, uh, this prophecy of the Son of God coming, the Messiah. And in, the, in this hearing, as you, as you listen to this right now, it's fulfilled. So Jesus declared himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah, to his home folk. They didn't take too kindly to it. And so he was rejected. And as he, uh, as he uh, began to move out, he left his hometown. He moved to the villages around there. And he began to teach there. And one of the things that I pointed out was, even though they had seen him, they had been in his presence, they missed him. He began to move all around them. He began to have an effect in this village, and this village, and this village, and this village, but not in Nazareth. He was all around, and they never saw him. And so much of what we talked about last week was, was spent talking about his ministry, and then him sending out his 12 to do very much what he had done. And he gave them the instruction on what to do, and they were able to see what he had done in that. But it was mainly from the perspective of the people who received the message. Or in many cases, and as the case in Nazareth, who did not receive the message. This week, we're looking more from the perspective of those who take the message. So I'm talking to every person who has trusted in Jesus. Everyone who is a disciple of Jesus, who is following Jesus, has trusted in Jesus Hopefully, I'm talking to every single person in this room and everybody who's watching, but it could be that you are in the case, it is the case with you, that rather, that you have heard a lot about Jesus, but you've never trusted in Jesus. And so I hope that you will hear the message that Jesus is who he says he is and that he loves you. And it's not enough just to know about Jesus. Jesus wants to know you. He wants you to know him in a real relationship that is transformative, that changes your life. You don't just believe some facts and then you continue in the life that you were. Knowing Jesus is a total transformation of who you were into who he wants you and is making you into be. It's not about acting better. It's about submitting to him because you cannot act better and he makes you into what he wants. And so it is all a work of him. So if we're talking about discipleship though, we're talking about following Jesus, we need to understand what a disciple is. And, and disciple, if I can break it down, I mean there are all sorts of definitions or things that we can talk about it. But a disciple is essentially someone who follows someone else. Who follows after someone else. It's someone who gives up their ideas of how things should be for the master that they're following. And it's, uh, we could say it's the same as an apprentice. An apprentice, someone who apprentices under someone else. And if we say, uh, talk about a, like a carpentry apprentice, which of course Jesus was a carpenter uh, because Joseph was a carpenter. And so we, we can know that Jesus would have apprenticed under Joseph. So what Joseph knew and learned and, and uh, what he was skilled at, Jesus knew and learned and became skilled at that. 
But the last thing I'm going to do, if I'm going to become a, a, an apprentice for a master carpenter, and that's generally what you want, I'm not going to want to find the guy who doesn't know how to put a nail in a board. I, you know, he calls himself a carpenter. I want the guy who's a master carpenter. I want the guy who can take, you know, a, a piece of wood and make it into something where you just go, wow, you know, that's the guy I want to, I want to, I want to apprentice under. So if I'm going to do that, I'm probably not going to walk into the shop, or if I do, it's probably a bad idea, I won't be there for long, and I see a piece of wood, and I walk over past the, the master, and I pick up the wood, and I walk over to the saw, and I start zipping away at it, cutting, and say, well, I think it should look like this, and then maybe that cut, and then I'll put a nail here, and then that's a screwdriver, I'll screw a screw here. That, that's not the way that I'm going to, to be an apprentice, right? Because I'm not there to learn. I'm there trying to trying to, to do what I want to do. I'm not going to go in and tell the master carpenter, okay, I want to work on that saw and those tools, those things right there. I want to learn those. I don't want to do that. I don't want to learn this. Because what's going to happen is, yeah, I can learn some stuff, but I am not going to become like the master because the master knows how all of this works and how all of this works together. And he can show me what it, what it does and how to do and how to think about this and how to see the product before I ever make it. He can, I can see it finished. That's what it means to be an apprentice to a master. And that's what it is for us as well. Someone who is a disciple sets aside their preconceived ideas in order to become like the master. And Jesus' disciples were called to follow him. And they had to go through a season of learning who Jesus was and what he was like. They, they needed to know, you know, what, what, what did he value? What were his priorities? What did he think was important? If I go in and I, well, that looks like that's important, but does that, is that what Jesus think is, thinks is important? How did he handle himself in various situations? Because I know in my life how he handled himself in many situations is not like I handle myself in many situations. The disciples, though, had a track record of not doing any of that very well. If you remember back when they were in the boat where they questioned, they doubted, they doubted Jesus. And they kind of scolded him. Why are you in this boat sleeping? We're, we're going to die. Don't you know that? And then after he had calmed the storm, they were like, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves, they obey him. This, these were his disciples. These are the guys who Jesus had already said, follow me, and they did. And yet, they didn't do it very well. Neither do I. Discipleship was and is about listening to the master teach. That's a very important thing. What did he teach? What did he say? But it is also watching how the master lived. And so in this passage, we get to see all of that come together as Jesus both instructed his disciples and he demonstrated, but he also demonstrated that what that looked like. They got to hear it and they got to see it. We get to hear it and we get to see it through the words that Mark gives us. He gets to see what it was like to minister from town to town. And it started even right there in his own hometown. So as we see this, as we see this laid out before us, as we get a, a visual image of the picture that has been painted in words here, 
then we, we get to see how Jesus established a model for carrying out the great commission that he gave his disciples before he left the earth. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Teach them to observe. Teach them to keep. Teach them to do. Because Jesus did. He taught the disciples to do. And now he's saying, now teach everybody else to do. To live this out. And so it was there for them and it is here for us today. And this was basically his instruction. This is how he communicated. He essentially said, go into a town. Or we could say, go to an individual. Go to a group of people. Maybe you and a pal. Go to someone and tell them the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. And that they can be a part of that eternal kingdom. If they believe the Messiah and they repent. They repent of their rebellion against God. This is not just about repenting because you said something wrong. This is not about just repenting because you, you did something wrong. It is about repenting because from the beginning of creation, mankind, all of us, have rebelled against God. We've tried to be our own gods. We've tried to call the shots on our own. Again, that is not discipleship. That is autonomy. That is your own, being your own God, your own king. And Jesus says, if you want to be a part of the eternal kingdom, then you follow the king. You submit to the king. And that's it. That's the message. That's it. Take the good news. Communicate the good news. What about beyond that? I mean, I communicate the good news, but, but you know, I, I need to convince them. You know, I've got to, I've got to push them kind of into the kingdom. But the Bible tells us that that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the result as he desires. Our only responsibility is to have the boldness to speak it and the boldness to live it. Right? For us to say it and do it. Somebody once said something that was attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It says, you know, live the gospel and, you know, when all else fails, use words. But that's not it. It really is communicating the gospel in our words and in our lives. One backs up the other. And so if we break it down, it sounds pretty simple. Communicate the gospel. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Just tell what's happened to you. What did, what did God do for you? So what's the hang up? Why is it so difficult? Why is it that we struggle with this? And Man, not everybody struggles, but most of us do, including myself. It's hard. Why? Why is it such a big deal? And I think that you know as well as I do, the answer to that question is it's fear. It's fear. We're afraid. And probably the greatest fear associated with living out the gospel is being rejected or being ridiculed because of what we say we believe. Especially living in an age of increased hostility to one level or another, against Christianity. Used to, it was cool to be a Christian whether you were one or not. Now it's hard to be a Christian even if you are. It's challenging. Jesus understands that. He went to his own hometown and was ridiculed. They thought he was a loon. They thought he had completely lost his gourd. All right, that he was just out of it. Can you imagine getting mocked in your own hometown? By people that you grew up with, who, who loved you, who knew you, 
but getting mocked because of who you've become. You know, you, usually you go home because, you know, you want to you show the, the, the people back, back home, you know, how, how well you've done, how you've grown, how you've matured so that they can be proud of you. And Jesus goes back and they're like, dude, what happened to you? It was even worse because Luke tells us that they tried to kill him. He passed through the crowd. You remember that story in Luke? But this kind of fear silences us before there's an opportunity for anybody to reject it. And so what do we do? We go undercover. That's the easy thing to do. It's, it's hard to do otherwise, but it's the easy thing to do. Go undercover. So how do we deal with this? I'm going to say this and hope you'll understand it, but I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit. It's this, we keep the mercy and the compassion of God before our eyes and we give people a reason to want to know what hope there is within us. We keep the mercy and the compassion. We could say the mercy, the compassion, the love, the grace. We can name all of those wonderful attributes, all those things that Jesus is and how he feels towards us. We keep all of that before our eyes. We keep that in focus, who God is who Christ is, who he revealed himself to be. We keep it before our eyes and we give people a reason to want to know what gives us hope. Paul said that very thing like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you want to turn there, I'll give you just a second. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 6. Second Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Look at how Paul said this. Therefore, since we have this ministry... Why? Because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Paul is saying we keep the mercy of God who has given us this ministry, but who has shown us mercy in all things. We keep this before our eyes. We do not give up. It is the motivator. Verse 2, he says, instead, instead of giving up, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting th the, the word of God but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. Okay, so what is he saying there? Okay, I keep the mercy of God before my eyes. I remember what God has done for me, and I remember that he has given me this ministry. And so I don't give up. Instead, what do I do? I renounce that. Why? Because God has been mercy to me. I renounce all the things that I formerly did, that I formerly held on to, that, I, that was a part of who I was. I renounce those things not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God. Why? Because I want to be true. I want to do what God has called me to do. And so instead, we commend ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. We live out the truth that we proclaim. So he, he's like, me keeping my eyes on Jesus is the only way that we can do what we, what we do. It's not about learning some trick. It's not learning, you know, some outline or some technique. It's about remembering how merciful God was to you. And then thinking, you know what? I bet he wants to be merciful to other people as well. Verse 3, though, he goes on. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So if people can't see it, it's because they are perishing. Verse 4, he says, in their case... The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of, the, of Christ, 
who is the image of God. So it's not because we've not lived it out and we've not proclaimed it, but because the God of this age has blinded their eyes, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel. Verse 5, for we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as, as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So it is all, it is all the work of God. It is all his. Now, back in Mark, Jesus told his disciples to do as he did. If they receive, if they repent, if they live out the gospel, they proclaim the gospel, they, they keep Christ in mind and who their master is, and so they do as he said to do, and they live the way he said to live, if they receive it and they repent it, then praise God. And if they don't, and this could be a little jarring to us, move on, he says. Move on, shaking the dust off of their sandals, which I mentioned last week was a testimony that they would have understand. That was something that was a part of Jewish life, that they had seen or heard of that before. And so they would have understood that this was uh, the disciples saying that if they continued to refuse, then judgment would follow. And it's the same warning, though, using different means that we, that we do today. We, we, we plead with people to come to Christ and say, if you don't, if you don't, there is only the penalty of your sin to pay. And you will stand before a holy God, not as Savior, but as judge. So I didn't mention this last week when we were going through this because it wasn't really relevant until today. But that passage, this passage where Jesus sends out the 12, it is again one of those Markin sandwiches that we've been talking about. What are we talking about with a Markin sandwich? A Markin sandwich is where Mark essentially takes a story. And by story, I'm not saying fiction. I'm just saying an account. He takes a story that would have a beginning and an ending. And then within that story, he puts a story. So you see here, he starts off by saying, uh, what Jesus did, he sent the, the, uh, the apostles out two by two. He gave them instruction. He sends them out. And then we, we pick up uh, here in, in chapter 6 where uh, he tells the story of John the Baptist and the effect that that had. And of course, this is an event that's already happened. It's already occurred. And, and so Mark, where this, is being, where this event is happening, Mark takes the story of what John has already gone through, already beheaded, and he inserts it here and says that Herod uh, was bothered because of these things. So, so we have this story within a story. And so it's, it's this literary device that he uses to connect the two stories by one in the middle that helps to explain the whole thing. So what we learn from that story inside, it informs the broader story or the story that is surrounding this. So what, what is he teaching? What do, we, what do we get out of this? And Mark is clearly inserting this account of John the Baptist beheading uh, so that he could speak to what is going on or what can be expected by the apostles who are going out. So James Edwards puts it this way. He says, John's martyrdom exemplifies the consequences of following Jesus in a world of greed and decadence, power and wealth. Mark sandwiches the brutal and moving account of the martyrdom of the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and their return in order to impress upon his readers the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. 
So in this passage, as I've mentioned, Mark can, communicates to the Roman Christians that he's writing to uh, that are facing this growing per, uh, persecution, this truth. It's a three-part truth. And the first is that we are called to obedience. Obedience is costly, but the reward is worth the cost. We are called to obedience. Obedience is costly, but the reward is worth the cost. Jesus was obedient to the Father, and it cost him his very life. And yet, his willing obedience led to the salvation for mankind. And Jesus looked at that. Jesus, before eternity, before in eternity past, he looked forward and he knew what was ahead. He knew the plan of the Godhead. He knew what the Father was calling him to. He looks and he sees the reward for his sacrifice. And he looks at those he loves and he says, it's worth it. And he took him all the way to the cross. And in the same way, as Jesus pressed on, we press on. As the resistance and the intolerance to the gospel grows, we press on. So I want to unpack what we have here briefly. Um, just making five statements that we see here that reveals to us, that Mark reveals to us in this passage about, about discipleship, about what it means for us to follow Jesus. Motivated not out of being forced to, but motivated out of love for God because God has demonstrated such love for us that in his mercy, he looked down. And I'll repeat this several times because it's worth us remembering. Because when things get hard, where do we turn? We turn back to the mercy of Jesus. We turn back to the love of Jesus. We turn back to the compassion of Jesus. And so what does it mean then to be a disciple in light of what Mark is revealing to us in this passage? The first thing that I want to communicate, this is the first statement I want to make, is the disciple, discipleship is not dependent on experience, but obedience. Discipleship is not determined or dependent on experience, only obedient. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that disciples never feel fully equipped for what God calls them to. And I think that's by design. I've never felt fully equipped in the 14 years that I've been in this ministry position and in the over 30 years that I've been involved in ministry. I've never felt fully equipped for what God has called me to. I always am looking with fear and truth and to what could be ahead and what's going on and this and these decisions and how, we, how do we do this? Just going, it's beyond me. But that is what God calls us to. And I fully believe that that's exactly what Jesus wants because he wants us to be fully dependent on himself. He doesn't want me to be fully, fully confident in what I'm called to do. He doesn't want me to, to be fully confident as a pastor. He wants me to be fully confident as a disciple who follows after him obediently, listening for him, waiting to hear his voice, not jumping out in front of him, not going, well, my experience tells me that this is the way this, this needs to go. Because it could be that my experience there is totally different to where Jesus is calling to the next, the next step to be. And that's the same in your life as well. God may call you to something and you feel very ill-equipped, and that might be exactly what he wants to do in your life. And there's something about Jesus sending out these apostles. If you, if you look at this, you realize this is very early. 
in their apostleship. All right, this is early. And they have not had a stellar record to this point. They have not demonstrated competence in apostling. Right? Like sometimes we don't feel like we're being very confident in adulting. Well, they're not confident and showing confidence uh, in, their, in their apostling. And so, you know, we kind of look at that and go, yo, Jesus, this is not going to go well. Right? I mean, they're not getting it. They're, they're not following you. It's not clicking with them. So why would he do it? Why would he send them out on this mission? Two by two, but it's two incompetent disciples going out together. I mean, it's one thing if it's, you know, an apprentice with the master is one thing, but you got two guys who are going to totally blow this thing up. So you got six teams of people who have no idea what they're doing. Okay, let's go. What is Jesus thinking here? Why would he do it? By God's grace, it's because he's not at all concerned with their ability. He's only, get this, only concerned with their obedience. What did Mark tell us? Verse 7. He sent them out, and what did he do? He gave them authority over unclean spirits. What does that tell us? It tells us it was not their authority. It was not their ability. He gave them his own authority. He emboldened them and he qualified them. They didn't take a test. They didn't have to repeat Bible verses. They didn't have 12 guys lined up doing Bible drills. Okay, Romans 3.23, go! It was their ability. I mean, it was their availability. It was their obedience. And he equipped them for what he called them to through his own authority to bring about the results that Jesus sent them out for. And what did they do? Verse 13, they trove out demons. They anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. I happen to have a picture of this where the apostles, and I may be wrong because I don't have video of it, but I kind of get the idea that the apostles are going, hey, you sure about this? Nope. He said to do it. Let's go. And so they they do it, and what do you know? The demon flees, not because of their faith, but because of Jesus' ability and power within them. And they see it, and they may be as shocked as anybody else. I have no idea. Got no proof of that. But I know that they were not ready. I know they were shocked at what Jesus did, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if they were shocked by what Jesus did through them. And I think that's one of the glorious things about discipleship is we get the opportunity quite a lot to be shocked at what Jesus does through us. When I was not equipped to do that, I have no idea how that happened. But Jesus, that's all I got. I got nothing else. No magic in the fingers, you know. I'm, I'm not the emperor, you know, in Star Wars. Who, I, don't, I don't have it. It's not in me. It was Jesus. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, your imperfection and your inability are not, are not hindrances to the gospel. And that's important for you to hear because that is the stance that quite often we take. My inability is a hindrance to the gospel, therefore I don't engage in gospel ministry. But your inability is not a hindrance to the kingdom of God. Only your disobedience. Only your disobedience can stop you. 
And you really don't need to be equipped with anything other than the story of what Jesus did in your own life. Someone once said something along the lines of, uh, of, of discipleship or, or sharing the gospel is really nothing more than one starving person telling to another starving person where they found food. Probably messed that up, but you get the point. It's telling another person what Jesus has done for you. And this leads to the second point, number two. Disciples are not sent to do anything new or innovative, but to accurately represent the one who commissioned them. Jesus bestowed this authority on his disciples so that they could participate in furthering his ministry, not their own. Fulfilling his agenda, not their own. So that he would look good, not them. Right? The focus was on Jesus, and I believe that Christians and churches get into trouble when they try to be too innovative or too cool or, or put a new twist on the gospel to make it more appealing. And all that does is tell us and tells others that we don't believe that Jesus is very appealing, that we need to, to boost him up a little bit. And if the Spirit does the work of the saving, then our responsibility as disciples is simply, again, to communicate the good news. We can't argue someone into the kingdom. Now, we can use argument to tear down, tear down strongholds, to tear down false assumptions. We can do that, but we can't argue someone into the kingdom. So the pressure is off at that point. Jesus even put his disciples at ease by telling them to turn and walk out if they were rejected. Just move on. Sounds harsh, but it's like, don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. It's above your pay grade. You just tell the truth, no more, no less. That's what I'm calling you to do. I'll take care of the rest. And the other problem with this is that when we want to be considered cool and inviting, we tend to shy away from the things that will make us uncool and uninviting. Right? So we're called to tell the truth, and yet if we are wanting to be liked, wanting to be... Uh, considered someone who is, is, is one of us and cool, then I'm less likely to say something to you that's going to get you offended or hurt your feelings. But the truth often hurts your feelings. If you've been here long enough, man, I've probably hurt your feelings. I'm pretty sure. I'm not going to ask for people to raise their hands if there's anything that I've said from up here that offended you or hurt your feelings because it might hurt my feelings. But it might just go, you know what? Good, good. Then we didn't shy away from the gospel. We didn't shy away from the truth because we're called to obedience. And so we have to communicate the truth. If we look at this story, we can see clearly that doing that got John the Baptist into trouble. That's what got him into trouble. Look at verses 14 to 20. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well-known. So apparently he's, we don't have the it defined, but apparently in the context is he heard about what was going on, what Jesus was doing, how he sent out these guys. They were doing some of the same stuff. And so he hears about this. Jesus' name had become well-known. And some said, hey, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's who he is. I threw that in. And that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard about it, he said, John, the one I beheaded has been raised. And that probably did not make him feel real comfortable because John, who I beheaded, this is not good for me. 17, we get the rest of the story. 
For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So what's the big deal? John gets thrown in prison because he married his brother's uh, wife. What's the problem? Verse 18 is the problem for John. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John is getting up in his face and telling him the hard truth, the truth he doesn't want to hear. Why? Because John's on a mission, and John knows that's the thing that will kill Herod. When we tell somebody what is destructive in their life, sort of the way Nathan did to David with different results, Nathan told David that he had committed adultery and murder. And David repented before God and was healed and forgiven. In this case, Herod didn't. And the Nathan here, John, he gets killed. Verse 19, so Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she couldn't because Herod feared John and protected him knowing he was a righteous and holy man. He knew the truth. And so when Herod heard him, he would be very per per perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. There's something about the truth. As much as we don't like what it's said, there's something that we hear, and it's like, you know what? I know you're shooting straight with me, and I don't like what you're saying, but I like to hear it because, man, there's something about this. There's something about here that, that gives me hope. So it will get us into trouble. It's not easy. But we're not called to be innovative. We're called to be truthful. Number three. Discipleship requires trusting in Jesus. We've covered this a good bit. Discipleship requires trusting in Jesus. Because here's a hard truth. No matter how much you try to buffer your life so that you, you don't have to deal with hardship, no matter how much you work to alleviate uncertainty in your life. You like your plans and you like to know where you're going to be in five years and 10 years. And, and you know when retirement comes, you know how much money you're going to have and what you're going to be doing and what that's going to mean for you for the rest of your life. We like to do that. And so there's a lot of planners who do that. But Jesus makes certain that our circumstances are going to move us outside of our control and our comfort level if we're his followers. It's just going to happen. You're going you're gonna to be outside your com comfort zone. Why? Because it is an essential part of discipleship. It is a key part of discipleship. It is not something that happens when your plans or when you badly plan. It's not something that happens when you, you just you think, man, I, I saw that totally different playing out and it did not. And, and so I must be a terrible planner. No, it means that you're having a, a difficult time being a, a good follower. Because Jesus is going to take you to places that you don't see and maybe don't want to go, at least in, your, in yourself. But it is an essential part of your discipleship. Notice the apostles did not have everything they needed going out because they were lousy packers. They didn't miss out on stuff because they forgot that thing on their list. No, they didn't have everything because they were obedient. They were obedient and did not take everything they would have normally needed because it was Jesus' instructions. He gave them a list of things not to take. And there are going to be times that Jesus calls us to some particular, pa uh, uh, some particular calling and you're not going to be ready. You're not going to feel ready. And you try to refuse until you feel ready. 
Okay, that's probably every, everybody in the room. If you've been asked to do something and you're just not feeling totally comfortable, then you're going to refuse that until you feel ready. But the problem and the danger is that you may miss that opportunity altogether because by design, you will never get to that point of being fully ready. That may be what God has for you, part of your path. It may be that Jesus' plan is to make you ready as you're doing it. After you say, okay, in your obedience, then you can see more of the path and you can see how Jesus is making you prepared and equipped. We've often said here, whatever God calls you to, he equips you for. But we can, we can mess that up if we feel like, well, God's going to prepare me, then he's going to call me. He's going to equip me, then he's going to call me. No, he calls you and then he equips you as you're, as you're going quite often. And Matthew's account of this event is explicit on this point. Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to move on, so just follow me. If you, if you can, turn quickly. Do your Bible drills now. Matthew chapter 10, 16 to 20. Jesus said, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as servants and as innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. Hey, good news. Boy, let's go. Verse 18. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them, to the Gentiles. And only now does he give this, this truth, this instruction, this encouragement. But when they hand you over, as if to say, they will. When, not if. When they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak. For you will be given, will be given. Not have been given. Not given you right now. You will be given what to say at that hour, verse 20, because it is not you speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. This speaks to why Jesus was so confident sending those guys out wholly unprepared early in their ministry because he wasn't sending them out alone and he won't send us out alone either. The last thing Jesus said, remember when he commissioned us, I'm saying all of us, to go into all the world, what did he say? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm there with you. I'll give you what you need. You just go. And it doesn't, of course, mean that it's going to be easy. Jesus didn't promise easy, only success in accomplishing all that the Spirit has for us. Which means, number four, discipleship is costly. Discipleship is costly. This is Mark's main emphasis as he inserts this into that middle dealing with John's uh, martyrdom to highlight how much it's going to cost, or at least how much it may cost. And there's no way to know what it's going to cost you if you are walking in obedience. I have no idea. Man, our paths may go in all the different directions that there are numbers of us. But at the very least, it's going to cost your comfort. Jesus may not call you around the world, but he may at least require you to put everything you own into his hands, and that's kind of a given. That's what a disciple does. He takes everything that's his and he puts it at the master's feet and he says, now tell me what to do with it, right? It's a call to relinquish your rights and everything that you think is yours, and it's not. So sometimes he's gonna use your money to help someone else who's in need. Sometimes he, he's gonna use your house to be a temporary home for other people for short times or maybe for longer periods. He'll use your time to, to spend caring for someone for him, from whom you'll get nothing in return. He may give you your clothes to someone else who has little or nothing to wear. 
He may take away your retirement account and invest it in some mission around the world to where you have to trust him for the rest of your life. I won't read it right now, but it's what he told us in Matthew early, in Matthew 6, where he talked about not worrying about uh, the things of this world because God knows everything you need and he'll provide it for you. He wanted to shape our attitude to begin to develop this trust that would deepen our relationship with him and also free us for the mission. It's a twofold benefit that he's shaping us for the mission and he's also deepening our relationship with him. Paul said in Philippians 3, look, everything that I counted as gain, I now count as loss. Everything that made me who I was as a prominent Pharisee, I counted as loss. I just want to be found in him. And in Paul's case, as with John the Baptist and the rest of the disciples, it cost them their very lives. Even John, the apostle John, who was not martyred by being killed, he's the only one who wasn't. He spent the rest of his life in in political exile. Sometimes disciples now as then will lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. And that leads us to the last thing. Discipleship is rewarding. Discipleship is rewarding. Verses 30 and 31 tells us that they reported all that had been accomplished. So we moved from the instruction through that middle story of the recounting of John the Baptist's martyrdom back to the end of that mission where they reported this. Uh, and again, it was evidenced by all the numbers that follow uh, who the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about how 5,000 was probably just the men. There were probably up through upwards of 15 to 20,000 people, many of which were most likely and most assuredly the result of the ministry that the apostles had been carrying out in the region. And then they were called to rest. Come on, let's go away and rest. And this is the same with all kingdom work. So if the apostles at the time, it meant being called to a place of refreshing with Jesus. And I immediately went back to Matthew 11, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I'm lowly and humble, and I, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Discipleship involves being with Jesus. And there are times when discipleship is hard and then there are times of refreshing when you can sit in his presence and be ministered as the word of God opens to you and and brings you some wonderful encouragement. He ignites the word through the spirit and encourages your soul. There are times with with friends when they speak an encouraging word for you. They, They pray over you. They encourage you. They challenge you. Sometimes it comes in gathering together in worship with the family. As we've already said in the last point, discipleship may cost our very lives, but in this is rest also. In that is rest also. The worst thing that can be done is that we will be sent into the presence of God through death where we hear him say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Enter into your rest. There is always reward and there's reward in seeing people trust in him that we could have the attitude of those who didn't count their own lives valuable in comparison to the gospel so that our lives are marked by radical obedience. I want to close with Hebrews 11, 13 through 15. This is called the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. It's where a long list of those who were faithful are kind of put on display to see what God had done through them. And then the writer 
concludes, wraps it all up by saying, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There is a place of rest that God calls us to as disciples, and it is all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So even today as we conclude with a time of communion, I want to encourage you to think on these things, on the mercy of God, the love of God, the compassion of God that fuels our discipleship, that fulfills our discipleship, uh, that, that brings about the reward of a disciple, all because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. For more information about The Gathering, or if you would like to hear more, please visit gatheringchattanooga.com. Mm-hmm.